watch movies or TV shows If that's what you like You a stupid hoe With a book house kids Yeah, with a book house kids With a book house kids Bitch Oh yeah, back in your life. Brand new podcast, brand new week. The Bookhouse Kids, the podcast where we talk about books. I am your host with the most, Caleb Gross, joined here as always by my co-host, Mr. Serial Girl, aka Jonathan O'Neill. Yo, it's time to get all sentient on the your ass with this book. And I am extremely excited about this book this week because it is uh, my second favorite author, you know, could be my favorite, Arthur C. Clarke. And this is probably his best known book, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, this is definitely his best best known book. Um, my favorite book by him. So I'm really excited for this episode. Yeah, and it's a great book. It's not It's not even scratching the surface of like his writing catalog, though. Arthur C. Clarke's so fucking talented in my mind that it's like, you know, for me to throw out an accusation like favorite book can be tough to do with such a good author. Well, that's true. I have only, this is like the only book I've read by him. Well, no, I've read Childhood Zen. I take that back. So I would say... This book is still my favorite. I mean, it's definitely top two favorite Arthur C. Clarke books at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah. I mean, like, I haven't read that much by him. So, in know. Arthur C. Clarke, though, like, from your brief reading experience, uh, isn't he just, like, he just hits the nail on the head for science fiction? Yeah. I mean, he explores everything you want to explore in a science fiction book. Very philosophical science like, fiction. Also, uh, hard science with, fiction. Yeah, a good mix of, like, hard science fiction and, like, also very philosophical, exploring the meaning of life. And but, they all kind of delve into, uh, you know, what is the uh, creation of life, the creation of intelligence. Yeah, uh, and so all cool. of his books kind of have like an undertone of, you know, the hierarchy of the universe and the creation of our beings. Definitely this one, for sure. Uh, 2001 is super, super influenced by, I guess, evolution, you could say. I mean, it's a, a, about like a journey. Like That's why it's called a space odyssey. It's like almost like... Uh, I mean, the journey like, of a species. Yeah, it's almost like you're reading like, uh, what's that? one book moby dick but like in space you know <laughs> yeah that, that's that's one comparison you can make is moby dick in space for 2001 a space odyssey you know what that's that's definitely going to be the subtitle for this episode thank you for that fucking just brilliant analysis of the book here china you're welcome yeah and this book is broken down into like three main parts at least in my mind and the first yes. one being um you know the beginning times with moon watcher yeah the um, second one being uh you know the space trip the discovery journey you know in in with how um, and then the third part to me is kind of the hotel room and this is just the way i'm roughly putting it together here that's yeah that's interesting yeah so the, yeah once after he <clears throat> i guess yeah that, that makes sense because after he uh goes into the hotel room that's when shit hits the fan yeah so i can and we'll, see that. we'll get to that here but we'll I just see go it ahead in a different segment but like yeah. That's, yeah i can see that and i mean we'll, we'll touch on it all here like yeah. but we're just going to start out with the beginning times and my and my monkey my main monkey moon watcher <laughs> Now this mother ucker is a monkey, He's a but he got a, little, he got a little intelligence on him though, right? He's a little smart. He's a little smart. And uh, he is with a monkey tribe and they are like limited as monkeys are to kind of their surroundings. They don't have the intelligence to come up with tools to uh, change their process of life. And you know, the beginning of this book too, the way Arthur C. Clarke kind of puts it out there. It's so is, weird, like how it starts off like And that. he explains just like the stupidity of the species. Uh, they go through and, the same malaise over and over again. And they never uh, learn from the mistakes. Mistakes. They never understand territorial. That, yeah, in in the beginning of the book, they would uh, coexist with things such as pigs, and they would never really get the idea that they could just kill a pig and solve their food problem. Instead, they were real 
scavengers. They were going and getting berries. They wouldn't really do things that would make their uh, life more leisurely. Yeah. And that all changes. That all changes once the The, monolith. Yeah. The monolith shows up. And I mean, I'm sure everybody, you know, listen to this podcast. You guys have probably seen the fucking movie. If not, watch the movie. Don't listen to us. Watch the movie. Holy shit. If you haven't seen that movie... That's great cinema. You're an idiot. Yeah. So the monolith appears, and this appears before the ape tribe. And the monolith essentially creates intelligence in the monkeys and gives them abstract thought. Gives them abstract thought. Gives them the sense of power. It teaches them how to use tools. And in essence, it, it pushes evolution onto them millennia it pushes evolution millennia it, it, it speeds it up the evolutionary exactly. chain yeah. so quickly and so rapidly through just the introduction this, of you, you know common things what do you think this monolith is i mean we can and talk about that later we'll, we'll talk about it later but i mean the monolith obviously at this point in the book would be described as something left by um a extraterrestrial being that was really kind of just probing our species at the time and experimenting maybe experimenting with them giving giving life and giving consciousness yeah exactly now once they find the monolith um things change for the monkeys they understand that rocks can be used as weapons they discover the throwing arm which is a common evolutionary theme even in you know science as it is today yeah Yeah. Yeah. it's like what you learn normally about evolution they learn of knots they learn of really anything but it's very super fast it just comes so fast and you know we're talking these monkeys have existed for like a hundred thousand years and they've never understood that these pigs that coexist with them they are able to simply strike down with a rock and eat yeah and once that that sense of power i guess the sense of i guess of importance and of uh of independence really kind of comes to them that's when the whole process just skyrockets really yeah and to end this part of the book i thought was just awesome so the monkeys are at constant war with another monkey tribe over a watering hole and they would never battle because it was just too hard for them to kill each other they're both equipped in the same manner and they are both equal as far as species goes yeah but there is a we're stupid you know and but there is a constant true predator that is the jaguar and the jaguar in the book kind of symbolizes the enemy and they live in constant fear of this jaguar and this is really you know on the evolutionary chain this is an apex predator whereas the monkey is not yeah if they see if they hear any sound of that that fucking jaguar they're like oh god i'm I'm fucking out of here but this one night my boy moonwalker says fuck it i want smoke with the jaguar (laughs) with the dick (laughs) he he doesn't want smoke with the dick but he wants smoke with that jaguar So he decides that he's going to go ahead and drag the animal carcass in his cave, thus attracting the jaguar. Now, this really wasn't done intentionally, but Moonwalker should have known the jaguar is going to show up for a fresh dead body. Oh, yeah. So the jaguar enters the cave where Moonwalker and all his monkey boys jump this mother ucka. Yeah, with their new uh, newfound knowledge of, like, tools, I guess. Of, and they uh, just killing. beat the shit out of this boy with a couple rocks. Murder, yeah. That jaguar doesn't want any of this kind of problems. Oh, yeah. And he jumps off of the precipice. Precipice. <laughs> the precipice. Whatever the fuck that word is. He jumps <laughs> off that to his death. death. He dead. So, yeah. My boy Moonwalker in the coldest fucking monkey he move looks of like, all yeah. time. Now, this monkey move is cold, guys. <laughs> he, goes, he goes to the dead jaguar body. 
Stray rips the head off the mother ucker, sticks it to a stick. Too many mother uckers in this book, I'm telling you. And walks it to the watering hole to show the other monkeys. To let them know that Moonwalker is now the king the of his he's, own yeah. reality. Yeah, he's boss. Alright everybody, now put on your fucking seatbelts, because we're jumping a hundred thousand years. Now within this hundred thousand years, the what we touched on earlier, the uh, evolution of monkey into humans has increased substantially. We are now human forms we are as we know today and it's yeah. all due to the monolith yeah i mean this book pretty much kind of just goes over the natural process of evolution but it kind of like has this idea that you know evolution was caused by extraterrestrials which is kind of interesting and it is interesting but like i mean at the same point the extraterrestrials wouldn't be the creation of life they'd be the creation of consciousness creation of consciousness which, yes. which speeded up our evolution of thought and this brings us to where our journey truly begins and that is the moon so, during an excavation of the moon, they discover another monolith, this time referred to as the TMA-1. Yep, that's abbreviated for um, Tycho Magnetic Anomaly 1. So, that's like a crater on the moon, Tycho, that they were doing a surveys of and eventually excavated the, another monolith, similar to the one in the very first part of the book. And that brings us to, like, one of our only, uh, one of our few, I should say, um, humans in the book, and this is Dr. Floyd. And Dr. Lloyd goes up to the moon on, you know, the United States behalf to go check out this TMA-1 and to see this anomaly in person. Yeah. When he goes up there, it's just kind of like, uh, you know, like a regular space trip to the moon at this point in time. Anybody knows he's on to something. There, there's yeah. definitely something there. The government are keeping yeah, it under wraps. Um, they understand that intelligent life must have put it there because it was buried deep within some the moon. And it also has very exact measurements yeah. that kind of signify intelligent life placing it there there's some political uh themes to this too as well because a lot of people are like you know there's a lot of secrets behind tma1 and everyone's kind of like oh is it the chinese like hiding like secret technology from us and, and like, it is it know. is n interesting to note here too the book was um written in the 60s and this is like you know kind of during the uh the space the space wars between us and russia and there is a brief mention of russia in the book yeah and then it's interesting enough floyd's best friend is from russia which is kind of interesting but um anyways so so when he comes across the uh TMA-1, they discover it. Um, it turns out that this is light activated. So when they excavated it and when they exposed it to sunlight, it sent a radio ping to the TMA-2. And the TMA-2 is located near Saturn. It's actually uh, kind of, you know, hovering around it like it would be one of the moons. Yeah, it's actually on a moon, uh, Iotopus, on the moon of Saturn. Essentially what happens was the, the corona of the sun of uh, the solar eclipse comes over. It eclipses over and brings the sunlight towards TMA-1. Then they all just, everyone that's standing around it hears this huge, like, screech. And this is the same screech that the monkeys heard 100,000 years before that led evolution to the creation of yeah. mankind that led to really this place to exploration that led to the excavating of the TMA-1. This is all intelligent design. This is all absolutely left behind so, by some extraterrestrial life. This sparked on this the next process to find TMA2. And the next process is the Discovery Journey. Now, this is the Saturn mission. Now, they send two live subjects to go to Saturn with three in hibernation. Mm -hmm. The three in hibernation know about the TMA-1. They know about the reason of the trip, whereas Frank Poole and David Bowman. Yeah. And they are left on the ship with Hal. Yes. In this part of the book, a lot of people might find it a little dry. 
because a lot of it is just them traveling through the asteroid belt just routine space life yeah a lot of i mean how takes care of everything how is you know the control ship for the entire ship whereas you know frank and david just kind of do their thing they just kind of run around in circles fucking live their own lives don't really have much to do they don't have any they can't bring any women like uh yeah no no bitches in this book like we can't even we can't even degrade women in this book like come on this is a bookhouse kids travesty we let you down sorry guys well we can sexualize how i guess a little bit I like to think of how it's like a sexy uh, British accent, you know? Yeah, yeah, he's pretty cool. I like that. Um, so anyways, my boy uh, David Bowieman, he's uh, he's running around the spaceship just doing his normal shit. And um, I guess this this kind of part of the book I like, I love, uh, just because I love space. I'm, I love space. And like the way that... Arthur C. Clarke describes them going through all of these, like through the asteroid belt, through Jupiter, through the moons of Jupiter, then all the way out to Saturn. So realistic. And it's, it, it's like a nerdgasm. Like if you're, if you love space and interested in astronomy, it like, is And Arthur C. Clarke in all of his books, his like writing of space is brilliant. I don't think there is a better writer for space exploration than Arthur C. Clarke, but yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, and my favorite part about this part of the book though is how, and it's almost yeah. like this kind of, to me is a little bit of the symbolism of the evolution of mankind oh, yeah. with just the idea of a construct of how, how is almost a conscious being really kind of is when, when it comes to to the end of the book because you find out that he has feelings as well he's able to uh create his own emotions for what they are but how though is interesting and i mean machines in general and ai in general is very interesting how because this is, is like, like it's a superior life form yeah, to that of us as humans he's just like almost like a regular person i mean like he's literally like i guess the the thing that sparks his emotions for the most part which later on causes a lot of problems so it's just yeah some shit goes down in space a lot of this shit that happens with Hal is just they're hiding something from the two main crew members and uh, what they're hiding is what the mission really is all about so through this Hal starts to malfunction and Hal is billed as you know perfectly reliable they've met the uh I'm forgetting the exact name I think it's the T-Series 9000 they've never had a air on the books they've never recorded an air with this model but Hal does malfunction Hal sends them on a mission to get the AE35 component, which is their communication device with Earth, and sends them out saying that this unit is going to fail. They bring the unit back in. It tests positively. They are informed from Earth that HAL is malfunctioning. Now, this is a scary thought because HAL is supposed to be perfect. Yeah. You know, essentially, it's kind of like he's in a complete control. Situation. He is in complete control. Yeah. Of them. Oh, yeah. And this is where the book gets kind of a little almost like frightening and suspenseful. Like, <laughs> and there's a good reason for that because HAL sends Frank Pills. <laughs> Frank Pills? <laughs> he sends Frank Poole on a mission that ultimately kills Frank Poole. Yeah. And that oh, is HAL's doing. HAL sends him in a little space pod that he makes crash killing frank pool and this part of the book really haunts me like when he's when david is, when david bowieman is just staring through the window first of all it's david bowman david bowie where are you bringing the bowieman from david bowieman please please respect the dead okay all right i'm sorry uh so david bowieman is looking he never died though david bowieman died transformed like a phoenix whoa okay we can talk about that later but, 
Um, so when he's looking through the window and he just sees Frank floating away, there's one part where he's like, Frank, if you can hear me, wave your hand. And then Frank moves his hand, but he knows that it's not from him consciously doing it. It's his hand just randomly moving. But he like feels this like just logic like he has a pure emotion of sadness that turns into logic of just knowing that he's dead and it's such a fucking like like haunting part of the book like just seeing frank like flow out towards saturn you can pretty much see know that he's like the first person that's actually going to be going to saturn you know because he's actually flowing out there and david bowman obviously distraught by this tries to awaken one of the remaining staff so that way they can decide you know what to do in this situation and when trying to uh awaken the rest of the remaining crew how decides to let go of the airlocks oh god killing everyone in hibernation this just comes out of nowhere in the book like it's pretty like fucking intense like you think you think everything's gonna be okay because he's like opening up the hibernation and then all of a sudden like he hears the little things that are on the ship and then all of a sudden fucking boom like just the seat the vacuum is opened and and it's terrifying yeah. because this is you know david, david bowman, bowman and hal now yeah david bowman and hal all by themselves and david, david bowman, bowman does disconnect how ending his life killing retiring whatever you want to call it the machine retire yeah gets rid of hal and this is when david bowman discovers that hal would have been in protocol like direct breach of protocol to awaken the remaining staff because he would have let out the secret that david bowman could not know of and that is the true mission to discover the tma2 exactly and they were not supposed to know this because the government wanted them to not know, have their emotions show on TV when they talked about it, I guess, essentially. There's a lot of other stuff. It I was, guess, yeah, it was it. just designed by the creators for them not to, to know. know. It was yeah. never in the intention. And I guess maybe to not distract them on their trips so they can keep themselves and in from, that same routine. And from this point on in the but, book, it, it kind of does, you know, just go on through the mission to him to get to Saturn. Luckily, he is uh, close enough to getting to Saturn, and he does arrive at Saturn, yeah. where he sees the TMA-2. Yeah, he, he uh, slowly but surely, like, all by himself on his little cruise ship out in the middle of nowhere in the vast sea of space, he finally finds the, the moon um, TMA-2. And upon finding the TMA-2, he does the natural path intended by the people who placed it there. Yeah. He flies into it. Sucks him in. And then... And the TMA-2 is a wormhole, which in the book would be referred to as the Stargate. Yeah. And sure. this is an awesome part of the book. Oh, God. Yeah. This it's is fucking incredible. Transcending. And similar to the movie, I guess, because it's very, very surreal. And um, this, I guess you could say Arthur C. Clarke is kind of saying what intergalactic travel could be. And in the way that, like, the Stargate is described in the book, um, a little bit differently than the movie, it kind of gives you a clearer picture on this being, like he said earlier, an intergalactic highway where ships are able to jump, whether it's dimensions, whether it's universes, whether it is whatever, they are able to find their ways across the universe and they're able to find their ways sickeningly quick. Exactly. Like, even faster than the speed of light as faster as you can't even perceive how fast you could be going in this and this deals with you know like time dilution and things that are you know you can just play with in science Which, because they are all speculative in theories my, in my opinion this is the final 
process of evolution. And this is what Arthur C. Clarke is. is trying yeah. to say. Once man has achieved intergalactic, intergalactic time travel, that's in its essence, you have control over so many things. You have, you have a whole different uh, aspect of power inside you, I guess. And, you know, I wouldn't say that it has anything to do with power. I would say that it has to do with intelligence and the fact that, you know, we were able to reach out there and we had the means yeah. to do it, which signified we were ready for the evolutionary step. And this brings us to the final location of the book, and that is the hotel room where David Bowman ends up and from this point he kind of begins the transformation in the final evolutionary step or at least the final evolutionary step that we're able to see as the readers into the star child yeah because they set him up nice in this little crib where they got and it's a nice uh, crib it's a nice pad they got some nice tv some nice drinks a little little bit of grub you can eat on you know what i'm saying so sooner or later you know he gets confronted and then uh turned into straight up star child and you can kind of expand on what star child is if if you want to talk about that? Yeah, and the Star Child would, like, as I said earlier, kind of be the next evolutionary step in the chain for um, our species. Yeah. And this Star Child is able to travel through the universe freely. And the first thing that the Star Child does is he goes to Earth, where we have floating nuclear bombs surrounding the Earth. The Star Child detonates these nuclear bombs, and it ends in almost the exact same faction the story of moonwalker ends in he is now the king of his own reality he is now able he has the power to do what he wants to and i mean if you think about this book moonwatcher and david bowman have the same story arc and they're essentially the same person and it's all because it sets up for you know the creation of our species and the evolution of our species yeah that's what i was gonna say like essentially like the book is about evolution and it kind of delves into theories about what evolution could be in the future um and the stargate that brings him into the um the transformation into the star child essentially that gives that's the last process of what arthur c Clarke's theory um has a theory on here of what humanity can achieve and um it's just so when he eventually turns into star child he has the power to do literally anything and it is interesting to note too we are referring it to as a star child and in the book and in both in the movie it is you know shown to be a a baby yeah and not it, even a baby really in the womb it's like an and embryo or like a yeah know, and john like you had an interesting take on this why do you like think a, that it was the embryo it's like almost like i would say like like a mother saying goodbye to their children when they grow up it's like the endless cycle um which comes back to evolution because at this point we're saying goodbye to our normal concept of of time reality of uh whatever you can say we experience on earth yeah and to me like the direct symbolism of it being the star child is kind of to show the infancy that we are in in the evolutionary process to yeah, show that we have only yeah. scratched the surface of our evolutionary process and the discovery of you know us becoming like a transcendent being such as a star child child really sets it up for infinite possibilities mm -hmm. and uh you know at shortly after this book uh not, not after this book when was this book written by the way Ooh, i believe 1962 so and i believe shortly after then we traveled to the moon I we didn't find the tma one that we didn't find sucks. the tma yeah. one but you know like this book i feel like sparked so much inspiration for um people like like astronomers it yeah and no and it did too and uh one thing 
that I really like is, you know, I, I love, and me and you both are Stanley Kubrick heads. We uh, really appreciate Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick so freaks. So the idea that this book was written in tandem with uh, Stanley Kubrick and created into the, the screenplay, 2001 A Space Odyssey, is like so fascinating. And when Stanley Kubrick was first reaching out to Arthur C. Clarke, he referred to, I want to create the first proverbably good space movie. Yeah, and they did just that. And I mean, the, even the in the effects. book, it is just that. It is the oh, yeah. proverbially good space story. So yeah, space odyssey. Like regardless whether it's the movie or the book, they're just both so well. And the marriage between the two, and the marriage between the mind of Kubrick oh, and Clark, is a beautiful thing. Um, this is, you know, one of my favorite things to think about. We had an off-air discussion about this earlier tonight. It, it's just so interesting to think of like two people we both revere as some of the best creators of our life times were together at one point it's, and you know made something together yeah it's like the best combination you could think of yeah and, and we're we're blessed for this we are blessed <laughs> for the book movie combo just, here yeah and if you if you can't tell like we just uh yeah we, we we're sucking their dicks hardcore yeah we're sucking those dicks yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the rating here for 2001 a space odyssey um no surprise i'm going 10 out of 10 what do you got to say jano one out of 10 i hate it nah no nah, it's 10 out of 10 i'm fucking with you guys and jano you told me something interesting early off air what did i say is this your second favorite book of all time yeah this is my second favorite book of all time so we got another one in the top five guys so that means in our first <laughs> five podcasts we have three of jano's top five books oh, so God. be prepared for the rest of them to come out this is okay so this is my second favorite because i watched this the movie when i was little and then when i finally read the book it just clicked because the movie, I loved it so much when I was little. But it's ambiguous. So, oh my God, yeah. You have no idea what's going on. This book, like, if you're reading this so book, and I remember I was exposition. the exact same way. When I, you know, I, I actually read the book prior to watching the movie, but I felt like when I was watching the movie, if I didn't read the book beforehand, I'd have no fucking clue what's going on. But that only bolsters the experience of the movie, oh because the movie is left up to interpretations, whereas the book is clearly defined. Dude, like... And in the creation process, that's really where Clark and Cooper heads so much and it was interesting to see you know the uh the relationship between the two yeah and, and like the movie is also one of the best movies of all time uh very like uh the special effects were like crazy for that, Cutting that edge, time yeah. period and then, not even that just like the artsy uh the artsy feel of the movie was so crazy for like a mainstream movie you know um but you know like like caleb said two amazing uh geniuses that made a masterpiece and th that's why it's my second favorite book i guess and i mean it definitely deserves to be up there we haven't touched my top five yet guys i will let you know when they come up um but until next Harry week, Potter we are the Bookhouse Kids, the podcast that talks about books. Um, go ahead and hit us up at bookhousekids at gmail.com. Somebody send us a fucking fan email. I've got nothing, and I'm sad because I check the inbox every day. We need to get a Twitter account at some point. We will eventually. get a Twitter account at some point, and eventually we'll start doing YouTube videos. But like, let's not talk about the master plan now. We'll just sprinkle it out on these bitches. Eventually, we'll turn into a star child, and then everybody will just uh, bow down to us. So yeah. And thank you to every listener that we have. Um, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. It's awesome. We're really, you know, trying to stay um, 
trying to stay consistent with these podcasts and you know drop every week for you thank you to everybody who's listening to us everybody who's fucking with us you know tell your sister to tell your mom to tell your aunt to tell your uncle that we're here and we're here to stay because we we want these listeners so on next week's edition of the bookhouse kids we will be discussing a graphic novel for a change probably the only graphic novel we're going to do it was on times 100 greatest novels of our century and that is the watchman also my second favorite book of all time it's in its top five right it's number two there you go (laughs) we will see you guys next week thank you all for listening